Welcome to the Adams Road Podcast, an outreach of the Christian music ministry Adams Road. Every week we examine a chapter from the Bible and share music filled with God's Word. You can find our weekly content by searching Adams Road Podcast on your podcast app. Let's start today by listening through Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back the price, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? While you kept it, didn't it remain your own? After it was sold, wasn't it in your power? How is it that you have conceived this thing in your heart? You haven't lied to men, but to God. Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and died. Great fear came on all who heard these things. The young men arose and wrapped him up, and they carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife, not knowing what had happened, came in. Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. But Peter asked her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. She fell down immediately at his feet and died. The young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her by her husband. Great fear came on the whole assembly and on all who heard these things. By the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. All right, today we're in Acts chapter 5. Let's go back to verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and kept back part of the price. His wife also being aware of it, then brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? While you kept it, didn't it remain your own? After it was sold, wasn't it in your power? How is it that you have conceived this thing in your heart? You haven't lied to men, but to God. Remember at the end of Acts chapter 4, Luke mentions that owners of lands and houses had sold them and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet. He also specifically mentions Barnabas having sold a field and brought the money to the apostles. Barnabas' pure and generous deed is then contrasted with a married couple's deceitful and selfish action. Maybe Barnabas and others were held in high esteem because of their sacrificial expressions of faith. Maybe Ananias and Sapphira coveted such quote-unquote glory and wanted to impress others with their level of sacrifice and spirituality. But unlike Barnabas, whose intents were sincere and humble, the motivations behind this couple's action were impure. Why would they feel the urge to lie about the price of the land? They wanted to appear as if they had given more than they actually had given. This is hypocritic and deceitful. They seemed to care less about making sure needs were met in the distribution 
and more about being rewarded by others for their action. It's bad enough to do good things for the wrong reason, to receive glory from people, for example. It's even worse to appear to do a good deed in order to receive honor for something you didn't actually do. They thought that they could fool men, but they couldn't fool God. They wanted to appear like the others who had offered so much to God without having to make the same level of sacrifice. In other words, they were trying to exaggerate their level of sacrifice to God in the eyes of others. Maybe a pride thing. The issue wasn't in how much Ananias did or didn't give. It wasn't necessarily in the fact they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. Peter basically tells them that the land was their own and that even after it was sold, they had the power to do whatever they wanted with the money. The issue was their deception. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They pretended to have given all the proceeds from the land to God when they had only given a portion of it. I wonder if we're ever like that. We sing songs like, I surrender all, congregationally, but are all of us actually surrendering all to Jesus? We'll pay at lip service, but do our actions align? How do examples of deceptive godliness play out in the modern church? It'd be like getting up in front of the entire congregation to give money to God, pulling out a giant wad of cash that looks like a thousand bucks or something, but that's only one dollar bill so it appears you're giving more than you actually are, and then flaunting that offering in the eyes of all to see. Maybe the culture of a certain church body is ready to hype up and honor those who give a lot. People in such a culture might be tempted to give because they thirst for the validation and praise they'll receive afterwards. Maybe some would be tempted to make it appear as if they're giving more than they actually are for the vain reward. Maybe those who appear the most righteous are given seats of authority and honor in the church, and so pure and sincere motivation for doing good things could easily be tainted. Motives matter to God. As a pastor, do you serve the church primarily for a paycheck? Do you claim a modest wage before the church but actually receive more? As members of a local church body, do we give to be seen by others and to receive honor from men? Do we ever act as if we give a certain amount of money or donate a certain amount of time to service, but actually give or do less than we promote? Do we do good deeds for self-promotion instead of for the increase of Christ's kingdom? Jesus said in Matthew 6.1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Verse 5, Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and died. Great fear came on all who heard these things. The young men arose and wrapped him up, and they carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife, not knowing what had happened, came in. Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. But Peter asked her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they'll carry you out. She fell down immediately at his feet and died. The young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her by her husband. Great fear came on the whole assembly and on all who heard these things. 
wow, every time I read this, I think, this is intense. What was done was apparently grievous enough in God's eyes to warrant such a response from him. They were certainly made examples of what not to do. It's clear from scripture God isn't impressed with deceptive godliness. Jesus had harsh words for the Pharisees on many occasions. And it appears God isn't thrilled with that kind of behavior today in his church. Consider the Apostle Paul's attitude toward the unrepentant within the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he asserts that a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. In other words, an openly rebellious believer or so-called believer can have a terrible impact on a local church body. That individual's actions can influence others and spread quickly like a disease. Paul wrote in verses 11 through 13 of 1 Corinthians 5 to the church, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside purge the evil person from among you. This idea of purging the evil from the midst of the congregation wouldn't have been a new or revolutionary concept for the Jewish first century church. It comes all the way back from Deuteronomy 17 verse 7 which says, The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So shall you purge the evil from your midst. But of course, under the new covenant, the church isn't given authority and permission by God to stone people or judge them in any way that would lead to their death. There are instances when the church is to judge individuals, removing them from the common fellowship for the good of the body, so as to, quote unquote, let that person be to the church as a Gentile rather than as an intricate member of the body. The Apostle Paul instructed the Corinthian church to remove such an individual to, as he put it, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's interesting, though, about the judgment that came upon Ananias in Acts 5 is that it wasn't the church who judged him. Peter did not sentence him to death. Peter, through the Holy Spirit, received a word of knowledge and called out Ananias regarding his sin. It was God's permissive will that Ananias die in response to what Peter had said. Who knows, maybe Peter's confrontation with Ananias and openly exposing his sin caught him so off guard and brought about so much conviction that he had a heart attack or something right there on the spot. The fact that he died wasn't Peter's judgment on him, but God's. I wonder if Peter was surprised Ananias was apparently struck dead in that instant. Maybe he was like, whoa, what just happened? I was just calling this dude out on his hypocrisy. I didn't think it was gonna like, just suddenly collapse. Peter was calling out his sin, but was he really expecting Ananias to just fall over and die? Regardless, it seems by the time Peter confronts Sapphira about her role in the deception, he was aware of what her fate was to be. And of course, this brought fear upon all. So why would God enact such a strict judgment here? Was this married couple saved believers? Or were they just Christian imposters? It's possible they were actually saved and just did something really stupid that God, in this instance, 
decided warranted physical death. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 5, If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life for those who sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I don't say that he should make a request concerning this. All in righteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Is it possible there are times God brings saved Christians who are heading down a dark road home to himself to spare them and others from the full wake of their destructive path? But whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were saved believers, what they were doing had no place in God's church. Especially when you consider the level of purity, devotion, love for God, sacrifice, and unity that the early church seemed to have. It doesn't seem like God's judgment here regarding Ananias and Sapphira has been the normal course of action during the nearly 2,000 year life of the Christian church. (laughs) Maybe an outlier. I've got to admit, guys, I'm relieved this doesn't seem to be the norm within the Christian church. I mean, could you imagine being in a church service and we're all singing, I surrender all, for example, and suddenly random people in the pews just start dropping like flies? Oh, there goes another one. Apparently, Johnny wasn't telling the truth about surrendering all this morning. No doubt the deceptive godliness spirit of Ananias and Sapphira is still alive in the church today, just because it's not always apparent or those who behave such aren't always judged to death or judged openly doesn't mean it doesn't exist, that it isn't a serious thing and something for which we should be on the lookout. Perhaps at times this Sapphira-like attitude is manifest in our own actions. So let's be sober and introspective and ask God to help us guard our hearts against such a temptation. Moving on. By the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. Alright, so what was the significance of signs and wonders being done by the hands of the apostles among the people? Was it to put on a show or demonstrate how cool they were? Of course not. Here's possibly one reason though. So the early church had to contend with imposters, false apostles and pretenders who would try and lead people away from the truth. How was someone to know whether the apostles were legit and their teachings could be taken seriously? Of course, the Holy Spirit witnesses to the truth. In addition, it appears the signs and wonders done by the apostles would have been a sort of verification before the people to help legitimize their apostleship. For example, the apostle Paul had warned against such false apostles in 2 Corinthians 11 to the Corinthian church. What Paul then writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 seems to indicate one of the purposes of signs and wonders in the early church. To verify true apostleship, Paul wrote in defense of his apostleship before the church, I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not at all inferior to these superlative apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you in all patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. All right, so coming back around here to Acts 5, these signs done regularly at the hands of the apostles mentioned here could have helped verify before the crowds their true apostleship. That these were Jesus' hand-selected witnesses 
with authority to lay the foundation of God's Word for the New Covenant Church. These signs and wonders were not the main thing these guys did, but seemed to play a role in setting the stage for their proclamation of truth and doctrine. By truth comes into light so others see That what they do is done through God But everyone who does evil hates the light And does not want to come into the light For fear that his deeds will be exposed Light has come into the Darkness more than light There's no fear when you are out So why the secrecy? Are you ashamed of what you teach? Salvation, why not speak? Just remember there's no secret, sacred things That should be secret are when you're in prayer And when you're giving to the poor When Jesus taught salvation He said nothing in secret But He spoke openly to the world So every ear could hear When you light a lamp you do Hide it where no one can see But you hold it up to shine So why the secrecy? Are you ashamed of what you teach? Salvation, why not speak? Just remember there's no secret, sacred things Said what I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what is whispered in your ear, proclaim for all to hear. For there's nothing concealed that will not ever be disclosed, for hidden that will not be known. In the temples, you keep secret. Oh
That was Secret Sacred Things from the Adams Road album Book of Life.
This is the Adams Road Podcast, an outreach of the Christian music ministry Adams Road. You can learn more about us at AdamsRoadMinistry.com. Again, that's AdamsRoadMinistry.com. We release a new podcast episode every Saturday. Feel free to join us next week as we examine Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 29. Grace and peace be with you all.